strangers. This episode is a bit more intense than usual, and I'm going to include a trigger warning for sexual assault, drugging, kidnapping, sex work, and drug busts. If you want to keep listening, buckle up. Do you want to come up to my room? I have a bunch of books in English, said Luca. He was part of the family I was volunteering with in Italy. I had planned to be there for a month because I wanted to harvest olives in a farmhouse in Umbria and wanted to say that sentence as much as possible for the rest of my life. But I was volunteering in different countries to save money and to get deeper into the culture. So I chose the few places I wanted to spend a solid chunk of time in, Italy being one of them. Every morning, I woke up to the sun glazing the tops of the rolling Tuscan hills, covered in cypress trees and olive groves. I would wake up every morning to the stillness of the trees, haloed by the emerging Italian sun. Mora, the matriarchy of the house, was the Italian grandmother I had always wanted. Every time she saw me, she would squeeze me tight, enough to crack my back. She would force-feed me lasagna and take me out to her garden to show me all the different kinds of herbs and greens that were healthy and would later throw into a cream sauce. It was heavenly. And I appreciated her motherly energy. As a 22-year-old and traveling alone for about three months, it felt nice for someone to take care of me just a little bit. She had two sons, Luca and Bernardo, both around my age, and I quickly developed a flirty relationship with Luca. I wasn't into him, but we both loved banter. I really enjoyed critiquing Italian culture and getting him a little annoyed as he would poke fun of my American mannerisms. Luca was around my age. I think maybe he was a little younger, and he lived at home because, because you know, can't leave mom yet. He also knew his way around a pasta plate, but had a charming baby face. Like a young John Travolta, but with a few more pounds on him. There were a few other volunteers around my age to hang out with, but one evening, five days into my month and a half stay, Luca and I found each other alone in the building that the volunteers stay in. That's when he proposed we go to his room. You know, to find some books in English, and I'd been saying how starved I was for new literature. I followed him back to the main house, an old wooden and stone building perched on a hill with a stunning view of the Tuscan landscape. It was sunset, and a yellowish tan color stretched over the lines of olive trees, full with plump, bitter olives ready to be plucked by my calloused hands the next day. I followed him into the family house, removed my shoes, and felt my whole body prickle as my bare feet hit the cold, tiled floor. The house was still. Mora and her husband and Bernardo were in town for the evening. We walked through the living room and into the kitchen with walls collaged with paintings. Each one was a rendering of the Blessed Virgin Mary, painted, sketched, large or small. Any empty space was filled with a framed painting of the Mother Mary. Although I'm not a religious person, I loved the cluttered yet intentional aesthetic. Bottles of olive oil and walnut wine sat on an old long wooden table, littered with crumbs from hardened bread from dinner. We creaked up the old wooden stairs with slots in between each one so you could stick your foot through it. We turned into his small room. Inside it was a low-level bookshelf, a twin bed, and a closet. I scrolled through the titles and paused when one caught my eye. I picked out a few, placed them on the ground, and heard the door shut behind us. I stood up and turned towards him. Oh, I've always wanted to read. And he grabs me. His large arms wrapped around me the way an angry pit bull latches onto a leg. He was not letting go. 
I felt his full strength squeeze me. I didn't have any wiggle room to even push my arms up and away from him. So I froze, rigid like a doll. My head was wedged into his chest, but I had some neck movement to avoid his lips coming at me. He kissed my hair, the side of my eye, as I tried to shake my head to avoid his persistent mouth. Finally, he thrusts his lips upon mine. I don't move. I turn into a possum that pretends to play dead in order to survive. And I'm sweating, because I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. I realize how weak I am. Why hadn't I stuck to my push-up challenge? His hands start to go for the dip in my waist and widening of my hips. It feels more like he's ruffling me around than caressing me, with choppy, heavy hands like trying to handle a disgruntled chicken. He takes a step and starts pushing me towards the bed. My body acquiesces, although my mind is screaming. It's a kind of awkward movement, like when you walk on your father's feet as a child. He holds your hands and you pretend to move as one body. It's uncoordinated. Only my father isn't here to protect me right now. A step. Another step. Another step. His arms still wrapped around me, lips forcibly upon mine. He then pushes me onto the bed and lays on top of me. I make any attempt to wiggle my way out. His hands start reaching for the top of my pants and all that lies below it. I felt Luca's body press and splay over mine. I can't believe this is happening. How could I be so dumb? I was obviously leading him on. Maybe, uh, I mean, I guess he thought I was flirting. Oh my freaking, how am I going to get out of this? Now I wish I could say that this was my first time being touched because someone else felt like it. Boyfriends had pushed too hard. Men had grabbed at me on the subways or as I walked into a bus. But as a woman, I understood that was part of the deal. I didn't really know what to do because I didn't know this person. I'd heard stories of women fighting back and that being their last action. I didn't know how he would respond. Maybe it would just be better if I let it happen. As I squirmed underneath him, I felt his humanity slip away as he began to get more aroused. Was this planned or an impulse? It felt like men were always allowed to act on their unruly desires, like they couldn't control it and were rarely punished for it. Or maybe the world was okay turning its head when this impulse kicked in. I feel his thick fingers start to wiggle into my tights. I gasp for air. His weight and my fear is making it hard for me to breathe. He shoves another hand over my breast, squishing it like a ball of clay. How the fuck am I gonna... As I wiggle under him, he pulls up for a moment and looks at my face. My hair is probably disheveled and splayed over the top of his bed. I'm not sure if he can see how scared I am. Or if he cares. He stares and asks, Why are you struggling? Before I had time to answer, we hear the house door open and we both jump up. I bolt for the door and run down the stairs and out the back door as fast as I can. I enter the volunteer house and there's a few people awake, hanging out in the common room. I walk right by them. I don't say anything. I don't even know what to say. I just do my night routine and pretend it didn't happen. We have all been in tricky situations. 
but they seem to be scarier when we're traveling. I think it's because we're so unfamiliar with where we are and our safety is being threatened. This can make traveling seem riskier and convince us to just stay home and watch the newest travel special on Netflix. Today on the podcast, we're worried. We will listen to stories of travelers who found themselves in sticky situations and answer the question, is the world as scary as it seems? What's the real probability of something terrible happening? How can we continue to travel with battle wounds on our bodies and minds? From getting caught with drugs in Brazil to being attacked by monkeys, we're going to relive the harrowing parts of our journeys and see how we come up on the other side. You may want to dig up your old childhood blanket for this episode because we're going to be a little scared. I'm Adrian Bain, and this is Strangers Abroad. Here we go. Before I visited Umbria, I was a typical American, nursed on the romanticized depictions of Italy. I believed that every morning I would wake up and dramatically thrust open the shutters to my balcony and hear opera playing on the streets, would have massive pasta lunches but never gain a pound, and spend each evening watching the sun burn as it dipped below the Tuscan hills. Maybe this idea was from watching too much under the Tuscan sun and a room with a view. But nevertheless, I know now that travel is only half of these romantic moments. There are a lot of misconceptions around people who travel full-time. It's believed that the lives of travel writers, bloggers, and podcasters are living one quixotic, spontaneous, daring adventure to the next. But for those of us who go out on the road more, we know the uncertainty of what it can bring. Nick and Amy from the travel podcast, What the Foe, are well aware of these misconceptions. Their travel show is packed with games, travel hacks, and guest speakers, and their own experiences traveling. So although they try to highlight the best of each place they visit, they know that travel isn't just Instagram pictures of food or whimsical run-ins with strangers. It's often uncomfortable, if not downright scary. They've happily agreed to share some of their most worrisome moments and bits of advice. When travel goes wrong. So yeah, normally we like to highlight all the good things about travel, you know, how great it can be. But of course, we're very honest about when things go bad as well. So, Which is quite regular when you're traveling. Things do, yeah. And, you know, when you are traveling, you think, oh, you know, why are things going wrong? On Instagram, it looks like everyone else is having the best time ever. But that's just not true. There are good and bad times. And this is quite an apt time for us to be talking because uh, as we are talking to you guys now, we're sitting in our hostel hotel room in Alexandria in Egypt and we haven't had the best time. So the last 24 hours have been a bit hectic, but we'll get on to that. Yeah, so a few stories that jumped to mind uh, when things went wrong was thousands, millions probably, people go on holiday in Cuba every year. And most people go to like nice hotels or resorts that are kind of cut off from the rest of Cuba. And that's not our style of travel. So we wanted to do Cuba ourselves. So we proper roughing it and backpacking it. 
very frustrating country to travel. One of the reasons is because there's no internet, so you can't book tickets or just research, you know, where's the bus station? So you have to ask someone. And when you ask someone, they want money. So anyway, we wanted to find salsa. We're in Havana, right? It should be the home of salsa. Because, Amy, you've, you used to dance a lot of salsa back in London, didn't you? Yeah, exactly. I used to go, I think, for a good three or four years, I used to dance salsa almost every night. So a lot of my friends in London were Cuban themselves. So I definitely thought... I need to dance salsa in Cuba. Yep, so trying to find a salsa club, you think it wouldn't be difficult in Havana, but it was. We started talking to a local, and we, you know, we like talking to locals. So we had a chat with him, and he said, oh, you know what, there's a really good place I'm about to go to where there's really good salsa. Follow me if you want. And we're thinking, what a great guy. Okay, let's follow well, him. Well, you were thinking, what a great guy. I was hesitant. You had your suspicions. But we followed him. We're into this horrible, dingy-looking club. No music, no salsa going on. He walked sat past the bouncer that was sitting down who didn't talk to us at all. Yeah, we walked right past the bouncer. We got in, no problem. And then this guy wants to sit with us. He wants to, he wants to get our drinks for us. And then what did you see behind me in the club? Yeah, so I was sitting with my back to the wall. Uh, Nick was facing me and had his back to the rest of the club. And suddenly I see these five women walk in towards the back of him and kind of surround him. And I don't know what the politically correct way to say this, but um, they were quite obviously prostitutes. Ladies of the night. Ladies of the night, let's go with that. Um, and they the oldest job in the world. Yes, it is. Well done, Nick. <laughs> Very intelligent you are. Uh, but they were surrounding Nick and I grabbed Nick's hand and I looked him in the eye and I said, Nick, run. And we, we were probably about two metres away from the door. We bolted for the door, and then the bouncer stood up, and obviously being a bouncer, he's quite a big man, and he covered the door and wouldn't let us leave. So I started arguing with him in Spanish, and I said, this isn't fair, this isn't fair. But he was saying, you haven't paid for your drink. And I said, yes, we have. We gave that man the money, because we'd already paid him before. Um, and like you said, Nick, about him putting stuff in, in my drink. So he was adamant that he wanted to go to the bar. And when he came back, he really stretched over the table to give me the drink rather than Nick, because we said we were sharing it. And uh, he put it right in front of me and just instantly it popped into my head and I thought, he's put something in that drink. So we didn't drink it. Anyway, back to the story. We were running for the door. The bouncer was covering the door and he really wouldn't let us out. We were struggling and so I elbowed him <laughs> to squeeze through. Luckily, I'm quite petite, so I could, compared to him anyway. So I squeezed through the door, practically climbed under his legs and then elbowed him again from the other side and grabbed Nick's hand and pulled him through the door. And we bolted home and we were so incredibly lucky that we actually knew where, what part of town we were and where our house was and we knew exactly what direction to run because when we was following the guy, we said to each other, we live down there, but we never told him... Just don't give people information. Be very general about where you're going and dates and stuff. You don't have to give people all this information because they will ask, where are you going? How long are you going for? Just be very vague. And they're always asking for a reason because they want to sell to you, even if they seem like your best friend. They, and that's nice. Like, you can talk to them, but just know why they're talking to you because they want to send you to your friend, their friend's shop or they want to get you in their tuk-tuk. So, yeah, just be general about where you're going. Yeah, that's just... This is what happens in places which are very touristic. Lie if you want to because then if you end up being friends later, then you can always tell them the truth and say, sorry, I didn't know who you were. 
Exactly. So that was a scary situation, and we didn't know what could have happened. We, d- we didn't know what these people were capable of. Maybe they just wanted a bribe. Maybe it was more sinister. Who knows? But, you know, these are only isolated events that doesn't happen often. But, yes, like Amy said, right now we're in Egypt. And just briefly, only yesterday we got in a bit of a bad situation. This was through couch surfing, which normally we have very good experiences with. But we agreed... We love couch surfing. We do love it. It makes a lot of our trips. But we agreed to stay with a guy in a really remote beach town. He, he invited us. He's like, come it'll be really great and I'm thinking yeah a place that no tourists go this would be really authentic let's do it and when we got there just the apartment he had for us was horrible there were cockroaches running around the water wasn't working the toilet wasn't working and he basically said right there you go guys I'll see you tomorrow bye left us alone in this flat with no Wi-Fi as well, so we couldn't even work out what to do around us. Yeah, and then we tried to leave. We walked around midnight trying to find another hotel, and there weren't any, and we was like, what do we do? But we spent the night in the cockroach-ridden place, and just first thing in the morning, we got out of there and got a taxi to the next town, or uh, well, the next city, Alexandria, where we are now. And just Egypt in general, it has some amazing places, you know, the pyramids, of course, and lots of really good attractions. And Cairo, some amazing places, really good fun, but also very overwhelming. But we just found that Egypt's quite hard work, especially for a woman, do you think? Yeah, so I found that incredibly tough this holiday. Obviously, because of the culture and the religion, it's a man's world. And that's just the way it is here. And so I've definitely struggled as a woman even down to little things where if we're out and about, everyone would always talk to Nick first. It's almost asking permission. Um, and I never get spoken to and I never get looked in the eye and it's and it's quite well, the sad. The really. only time you get spoken to is... Ah, if I'm being told that I'm beautiful. Oh, let me buy you for this many camels. Or you're a lucky man to me. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I get spoken to through you by being told that you're a lucky man for being with me. And it's just not very nice. You are an object. <laughs> so those are our stories uh we hope you it's weird to say we hope you enjoyed them because they're not very nice stories but we just want to stress that this is kind of one percent not even that of travel and you know we wouldn't be sitting here in egypt if all these stories consumed us because the important thing is to go out there and fight your fears and live life and travel We put a lot of faith in the universe when we choose to venture far from home. We step off a plane, cross our fingers, and hope for the best. But the universe isn't as much of a protector as it is a teacher. It will show us the parts of ourselves that we have to grow from. And my travel buddies Brian and Jason have found that the universe isn't always subtle about the lessons it's trying to teach. I met Brian and Jason when I was working at the chocolate shop in Peru and just starting my podcast. We kept in touch, and a year later and some change, I got to sit down with them and hear their stories from traveling all over. Brian and Jason have been friends for years, and interviewing them was like talking to an old couple. Their quibbling is earned because they've spent the best and worst days together, from Peru to Greece to New York. Although some of their stories make them sound like punks, they're really dads at heart. So much so, they have matching tattoos that say punk dads, which is adorable. They have seen the highs and lows of traveling together and have learned from each other's mistakes. Oh, oh that, that's a great segue to another story where I got drugged. So I, I'm, I'm sounding like the fucking de, de, you know, de, de, degenerate, uh, debaucherous 
Well, I'm really like a really like old dad when it comes to We're like, dads at heart, but it's just we can kind of cut loose sometimes. He cuts loose better than I do. Well, okay, so in Spain this last summer, I we were in Barcelona. Had a had a, I had a couple beers. Miles, our third dad punk for that trip, and Jason, pardon. I'm not a partier. No, I know he's not. Miles partying. isn't either, but he and I had a couple beers, and they were jet lagged from flying in. I'd been there for a couple days. Had a nice romantic trio bike ride along the beach. It was beautiful, fun, awesome. And then, so high. And then, you know, we got some beers, and I wanted to keep going because I was well-rested and fun. They are kind of jet-lagged and miserable, and, and, so they stayed back at the hostel. And that was part of the thing, too, when it comes to, like, us traveling together. If he wants to go party... He's an adult. Nothing gets in my by, way. He can do it by himself. <laughs> I'm going to go to sleep. That ain't my... I wasn't like there at the party. I just wanted to go like... Yeah, you know, just wanted to go out and check So I went to a dive out. bar and, you know, got a gin and tonic because that's what people do in Spain. And he and, didn't. This is the key part. That that moment in community college or college when they tell you now the social aspects of things. Don't leave your drink unattended or not open. Right. The most basic of things that you learn in college. Guess what? Well, so anyways, These two didn't uh, really go to college either. Oh, I went to college. I just didn't have the college lifestyle. But anyway, so short story long, again, I left my drink unattended, my gin and tonic. So I went to the restroom, left it unattended, came back, and the last thing I remember was ordering another because I was, like, getting done with it. Next thing I know, I'm on a park bench, and it's noon the next day, bright and shiny. And I use whatever broken Spanish that I had, you know, learned through my years of industry Mexican Spanish and Spanish Spanish are very different. Yeah, they look like buttheads with each other. Figured out that I was 12 kilometers outside of Barcelona. So I got drugged and they cut my pockets out and stole my, uh, my phone, my iPhone that I just got like three months ago. First I world problems. Bunch of photos on, Actually, on Spain's kind of a first world-ish. Okay, yeah, it, it's appropriate. First world problems. Got my phone stolen, my wallet stolen, all my cards, credit cards, cash. I, uh, I had like 600 euros. You know, I couldn't do anything but just kind of laugh at the situation. I was like, I'm a dumb fucking tourist. Like, what? Do I not read? Do I not know anything? I, I do know things, but I just kind of like. I think I just kind of put a little much. As they say in modern society, I put too much trust in the universe, you know? <clears throat> yeah, apparently. So, oh, they, oh, here's the funniest part ever. Aside from cutting my pockets open, and, like I can't wear my pants anymore, um, they stole my new shoes. Like I was barefoot. Like, I well, bought him a new pair of shoes. It sucks. I was. I was <laughs> the next day, I bought him a new pair of Nikes that he's wearing. I right was now. walking around in socks in torn, torn ass pockets, and you know, just like trying to use my broken Spanish to like figure out where am I? Like, don't they um, me? Like, <laughs> and, like, um, and some fucking extraordinarily kind middle-aged gentleman, like, looks, takes, like, one, you know, head-to-toe look at me, and, like, puts his hands on his head, he's like, oh my god, like, you know, zapatos, donde esta zapatos, like, you know, like, yeah, where the fuck are my shoes, like, I need to get home, um, they're, like, basically figures out, or I figured out through him that I'm 12 kilometers outside of Barcelona, and um, he, he puts my sorry ass on a, on a train, bless his soul and heart and his whole, Essence. you know, yeah, his whole uh, being, and he sends me on a, on a uh, subway, or a train thing, to back to the hostel, the Elborn area where we were staying, and I figured out from there how to get to the hostel, and uh, got on the computer and messaged them because they were worried sick they didn't know where the fuck i was it was like two o'clock the next day whatever 
And this is the funny part. Day four into a two and a half week long, no, a three week long trip from Spain to Portugal. So teamwork, I had to rely on uh, my, the financial finesse of, of Jason Clavern and Miles Singh uh, through the whole brunt of it. And it led to a whole lot of uh, like a crazy domino effect of complications because I'm the daddest of the dad punks who puts every... He has a credit card. I, I have... It'd be an honor to have a savings account. Dude, I gotta say, like, I've, from, from, like, learning rights and wrongs throughout my adulthood, my credit score was pretty fucking spectacular at the time. So I got, like, you know, uh, the rental car was under my name, hostels were under my credit card, and the most mind-blowing thing that I've only experienced in Spain is, like, you know, you have to purchase time slots to do things like going to the Sagrada Familia, Mm -hmm. or, you know, Park Well, or any, like, you have, it's, it's assigned to your credit card number, and a certain specific time slot. So we missed out on Sagrada Familia because of that shit, because of my dumbass. And we missed out on, we almost missed out on Park Guell and the Alhambra when we went to Granada. As so, long as we didn't miss out on Alhambra, that's all that matters. And it was phenomenal. Anyway, we, we, we fought our way, I'd, you know, fought, fought my way over the phone to make it happen. But um, there was just, yeah, first world problems, but at the same time, that, that shit was stressful. And, and in those situations, like, our buddy Miles, that was, like, kind of his first, like, big time out of the country. So he was panicking. I'm like, dude, nothing is going to help the situation you panicking. What we need to do is it's, like, we need to present an idea to him there. So it's like, okay, this is cool. So this is what we'll do. Financially, we're going to split things. We're going to do this, this way, this, this way. When you see Brian, don't panic. Don't. Everything's cool. He's fine. We figure this out. We think you, he is. You learn to figure things out. And then you're forced to. It's like, okay, well, this happened. Are you going to sit there and cry about it, or are you going to do something about it? You have to do something about it. Right. So you learn. Tears don't help anything. No, they don't. No. No. Not much. I mean, ultimately, I will end this, or end that last negative part on a positive. It's just like, all right, I think every culture has been able to find the beauty in something. And that is the one thing I can always take back from any negative experience. You only live... Fucking YOLO. I didn't want to say you only live once, but... It's true. Because we kind of do. Brian and Jason keep traveling, even when the world tells them to slow down. But I love Jason's advice to not panic, because it often doesn't serve us in a time of crisis. Panicking blurs our focus and vision. It has us make irrational and often detrimental decisions. Still, sometimes panic is unavoidable when confronted with the worst of the world. Cruelty is scary to witness in fellow humans. It's wild, uncontrollable. There's no rationalizing with it. It's like dealing with a wild animal who has no cares for our moral standards. They have their minds set on something and go for it. No cares for the damage that they may do. It's hard to know what to do when you come up against cruelty, in humans or in beasts. Adam Selbest, a New York City storyteller and storytelling host, has had several run-ins with animals and has witnessed that untamable impulse firsthand. Whenever you're ready. All right, we're ready. We're doing it. All right, we're doing it. So I don't, I don't want to brag, but I've been attacked by a lot of animals and it's not because i dislike animals or because i'm afraid of them i really really love animals unfortunately i'm a little bit 
less Dr. Doolittle and a little bit more like Lenny from Of Mice and Men. Um, when I see animals, I get really, I get really excited. I really love them. So as, as a result, I've been attacked by a lot of the animals that I've tried to love, um, which hasn't put me off animals at all. Like, you know, I, a lot of the animals that I have loved, we've gotten into arguments and, uh, things have happened. Like, you know, we had a golden retriever that, um, they're very nice dogs. She was a very nice dog, but we did get into a very bad argument one night and I was sent to the hospital afterwards. After a bad bite, I was I was attacked by a tiger that my mother was helping take care of. It, it's happened a lot, but despite that, I, it hasn't made me like animals, love animals any less, except for one animal in particular. When I tell people that I'm terrified of monkeys, a lot of times they don't, they're incredulous. They don't understand it. They're like, oh, but they're wonderful. They're so cute. And they're like little scamps. They're like little people. People like that that say that have... In, my experience spent almost no time with actual monkeys because they are fucking terrifying. I can curse on this, right? They're f- fucking terrifying. Um, I've been attacked by several different species of monkeys on four different continents. The very first time, I was only seven, seven years old. I didn't have to go very far. I grew up on Long Island, and my neighbor had gotten a monkey. Like, leave it to me, of course, like the very first like animal that ever attacked me was a monkey on Long Island. And the monkey was a child as well. Like, it was a baby monkey. And they said, oh, look, we got we have a monkey. I, I forget if the monkey, they had bought it or it was visiting. I don't remember. It was wearing a diaper. And it just launched itself at me and wrapped itself around my leg and started biting me. And I was like, ah! <laughs> it was absolutely terrifying. I just remember the little his little face, his teeth sliding because they were unable to get purchase on my on my calf muscle, and he was trying so hard to get in there and and really break the skin. So the monkey was too small to really bite me or hurt me, but to a seven-year-old, there's nothing more terrifying. And this instilled many, many months of nightmares and bedwetting. A really formative experience happened my first time I was visiting Marrakesh. And if you've ever been to Marrakesh, the food is great. It's a truly magical place. Here's a tip, though. If a stranger walks up to you and attempts to wrap a monkey around your face, it's not a charming local custom. You're being mugged. Um, I didn't realize this, and I was telling this story at one point, um, and someone in the audience started gesticulating wildly, and afterwards he ran up to me and said, you know, the exact same thing happened to me in Marrakesh, right outside the Jamalfna, this square. And I said, that's where it happened to me. He said, the exact same thing happened to me. And I've been telling people that for years, and nobody ever believed me. I said, well, I met the exact same guy you did, because he's got a really unique way of mugging people. He wrapped a monkey around my head and basically demanded money to take it off. <laughs> and I think the general scam there is that they'll put a monkey on you and you take pictures and then they press you for money. But if they can tell you're scared of monkeys, they can skip the whole photo part and just go, just go straight for the cash. And I'm terrified of monkeys. So, you know, I gave him a lot of money, which is actually, that's great. That's how I learned how to say, please take your fucking disgusting monkey off my face in Arabic. So I wanted to make sure I knew how to, exactly how to communicate exactly what I wanted to say the next time it happened. So I thought that was it, getting mugged by someone using a monkey as as a weapon. Until the first time I went to India and I was walk, walking in New Delhi, and I was actually mugged by two monkeys without a person in sight at all. I was walking down an alleyway. I had just bought some mangoes, this beautiful, like mangoes in India. It was incredible. And a monkey sort of came and cut me off in this narrow alleyway. So I was like, okay, you know, I'm from New York. I know, I know, I know what to do. I turned around and started going back, but his little monkey friend cut me off in that way. And they started walking towards me and I was like, oh, dip, 
they're mugging me. So I just very slowly put the, the mangoes down, and they went for the mangoes, and I and I left. I felt just as angry as when I've been mugged by people, like just in so infuriating, like like the sense of dishonor that comes with it. Like you're such a loser. Like God, it was just two monkeys. Like, what am I going to do? That would you call the police? Like, which monkeys were it? Can you describe them? It's like, yes, they're the monkeys that are around mugging everybody. It's a. There's actually a huge problem in New Delhi because these this specific kind of monkey. I don't know what they're called, but they're small. They look like capuchin sort of monkeys, but they're they're like the ubiquitous monkey like around in like the urban settings. Like they're like the squirrels of India. They get into office buildings at night and cause havoc. So they need to clear out the monkeys. The monkeys aren't afraid of people. They're much, they're very small. They're only about 20 pounds each. They're much stronger than a person and they're really vicious. They're like just as evil as like people are, but without any of the sense of morality or social standing that people have. So it's like super terrifying. So what they do is they hire somebody who owns a bigger monkey um, than these monkeys are. And he'll go through and clear them out room by room because the monkeys are afraid of a bigger monkey. Um, so he has like a langur, which is like a really big monkey and he'll go around and they have to do this every morning. The guy makes a very nice living doing this. So uh, sometimes I tell people I was mugged by monkeys, like my roommate, Nathan earlier. And he said, I don't believe the story you're telling me. I'll show him the New York times article about, about them having to hire the monkey person to clear out all of the other monkeys. And I'm like, there's a whole monkey ecosystem going on there that you don't even understand. And I understand why you don't believe what I'm telling you. But this is this is a reality people have to deal with. But that's not my that's far from my worst or most terrifying monkey story. And that happened in this little town of Ranakpur, India. Ranakpur doesn't have a lot to recommend it. It's very difficult to get to. You have to take a train to a bus and it's a very long bus ride. And there's two things in Ranakpur. Well, three, I should say. There's the bus station when you come in, which is, you know, it's your normal bus station. They have a monkey preserve, which means there's monkeys everywhere because they don't stay in the preserve. It's surrounded by forest and jungle, so they're everywhere. Um, And there's a very beautiful Jain temple. If you've never seen a Jain temple, I can't recommend going to see them enough. I I had seen some in Jaisalmer, Rajasthan. They're these very intricately carved temples. They're just amazing. And I had heard that there was a really beautiful one made of marble. The one I had seen in Jaisalmer was made of sandstone. And I was like, I have to see this marble. And it's absolutely stunning um, and well worth the trip. But other than that, there's nothing to do there. So you go and you see the temple and that takes an hour. And then you have to wait until the next day when the bus takes you home. Everything is run by generators. So at around 7 or 8 p.m., the light, all the lights went off everywhere in the guest house I was staying in. So I couldn't read. I couldn't do anything. So I went down to the bus station to hang out because that's where everybody hangs out in the town. That's where the action is because there's still electricity on at the bus station. And there's this very special floor show that goes on. It's the only form of entertainment in the entire town. And it's the same show over and over and over again. And you think you would get sick of a show that you were watching over and over, but you don't because this show is so great. And it's super cheap. It costs 50 cents for the entire audience. All you have to do is go into the bus station and buy a packet of cookies. You walk out into the street when there's no buses coming, and you just throw the cookies into the street. And immediately from all around you, monkeys will stream down from the trees and run into the street and start fighting over this little tiny packet of super cheap cookies. And then when they're done, there's like, you know, little scraps of of the plastic wrapper and cookies everywhere and then all these hungry feral dogs will come running in 
as the monkeys are leaving and start fighting over the little scraps, like yipping and, and barking and like snarling at each other. And then they'll leave, which is when the songbirds come and they'll start pecking up all of the little little tiny bits of cookie that were left over. And then as the enc- for the encore, an emaciated cow that looks really, really sickly will sort of lumber out from the side and eat the plastic wrapper. And when I say the cow looks sickly, the cow is subsisting entirely on plastic. So it doesn't look good, but it's it's an essential part of the act because that's how you know that the show is over. It's like the equivalent of that lady singing. So, you know, I just hung out there for like three or four hours drinking like apple wine, watching this, this show and laughing with the locals. And, you know, when you're like, Engaging in an activity like that, it feels really good. We didn't speak the same language. They didn't know any English. We were having a good time, and it felt really warm and nice, and it's one of those really great moments when you're traveling where you, you know, you feel like you've engaged and connected with somebody. And so then, drunk on apple wine, I went to my guest house, and I fell asleep. But the next morning, I woke up early, and I had maybe like an hour to kill before my bus was coming. So I said, you know what? I'll check out, and I'll go down to the bus station. I'll see if anyone's around, and, you know, maybe I'll get to see a few you know, a few rounds of this great play that I really love, like the Rannachpur play. As I was walking with all my bags crossing the street, this this kid, like this teenager with like kind of an impish smile looked at me because now it wasn't, it wasn't the same crowd as it was last night. It wasn't like, you know, all these older guys sitting around like hanging out playing chess and drinking apple wine. It was like like some rowdy kids, like teenagers. So one of them gave me this impish, devilish smile and whipped a packet of cookies right at me, and it hit me in the chest and landed at my feet. And I saw the monkeys streaming down from the trees. And as I said before, I'm terrified of them. This kid couldn't have known that, but I guarantee you, he wouldn't have cared. So I just dropped my bags and screwed my eyes really tight because I didn't want them, like, grabbing my, you know, cookies and thinking they were cookies and plucking them out of my head or anything. I don't know. So I just covered my face and I stood there and I felt all this commotion around around my feet. Um, and I waited a little longer than I thought that I would need to, but something felt like a little bit off about this version of the play because there were no dogs coming. I didn't hear, I didn't hear barking. I, you know, it was really quiet. So I, I cautiously opened one eye, and what I saw was that all the monkeys were sitting around me, staring at me, except for one who was, had my trousers in his hands. And so I, I took my hands off my face, and I looked at him, and he looked back at me, and he huffed his cheeks out really hard, and he bared his teeth at me. And with his other hand, he grabbed another leg of my trouser, and another monkey reached up and grabbed that same trouser and huffed his cheeks out at me, which is when I realized with, I had this sickening feeling and I realized that they still thought that I had more cookies and they wanted them. So now as panic is starting to build, I looked over at the teenager who had thrown the cookies at me and that's when I really became scared because I could see on his face he had already moved way past how are we going to save this dumb white guy to I hope prison won't be too bad. He had gone white with fear, with his eyes open wide. Not fear for me, but fear for himself because he was going to be he was going to be punished for this because the only industry that Ranipur had going on at all was the tourist industry and it wasn't exactly thriving and he had just killed 
what, one of the last stores to ever go to Ranakpur. So I didn't know what to do, and I was I was trying to stay as calm as I could, and I began very deliberately but very slowly searching my pockets for something that could save me, which is when I, I found I, I couldn't believe it. But before I knew about this play, I was dumb, and I had gone into the um, concession stand and purchased a pack of cookies and eaten them before I knew that you could spend them and watch watch this show. And in my pocket was an empty wrapper of cookies, which I then pulled out, and in my best, Jeff Goldblum from Jurassic Park style, waving it over my head. I waved it one way, and, and all the monkeys went one way, and I waved it the other way, and they all went the other way. And then I whipped it. I threw it as hard as I've ever thrown anything in my entire life, and it was an empty packet of cookies, so it went right right down by my feet and they all leapt for it. And I grabbed my bags and I ran past the kid that had thrown the cookies and I pounded on the door of my bus, which was there. And they weren't letting people on yet. I made them let me on. I made them shut the door behind me and I went to the back of the bus and I curled up in a ball and began openly weeping until the bus left. Nobody sat with me. Nobody talked to me because I had obviously been crying for an hour. So since then I've made an executive decision that while I love traveling and I love going to third world countries, I'm never going to another country that has monkeys ever again, which is a sacrifice that I think has been worthwhile. It's been <laughs> because since I've made that decision, I've, I still get to travel. I just got back from Cuba, but I'm still alive. And I have a feeling as things get worse and worse, my, my next engagement with monkeys is sure to leave like the flesh strip from my body and I'm, I'm done and I'm over with it. But humans can be worse than animals. I, I don't remember how or if I fell asleep, but as I laid down on the bed, I still felt the weight of him imprinted on my body. My womanhood felt heavy that night. I was so conflicted, because I didn't really want to leave. Well, we're, it would feel weird if I just up and left, and, and the biggest city was still a car ride and a few train stops away. I loved everyone else here, especially Mora. I loved waking up in the peace of the Italian countryside. I loved the feeling of picking olives by hand and being part of an ancient tradition. But maybe I was idolizing Italian culture too much and ignoring some blatant problems. Woven in between the rolling hills and vats of wine is a culture with misperceptions around gender. In a recent study, 27% of Italian women have experienced some form of sexual abuse by a partner or a stranger. Over half of Italian women have been sexually harassed on the streets or stalked. That's not to say that the rest of the world is particularly better, but Italy is a culture caught between the Madonna whore complex, the sainthood of their mothers, but the entitlement to women's bodies. My obsessions with the beautiful aspects of this culture allowed me to overlook the glaring issues. It's easy to glorify other countries, better healthcare, superior metro, cheaper rent. But it isn't until we leave our homes that we realize how good we actually have it. This is what Dawn Fletcher, a New York City storyteller, realized when she was in Brazil for the first time. I'm 20 years old and I am ecstatic about the opportunity of a lifetime to go to the sexiest place on earth, the place with dancing, with soul, with samba, and soccer, Brazil. It is going to be an epic 
20th year of my life on this planet. So I'm ready to go because at the time, I'm not really feeling the states. Uh, Bush is our president and he had just been waging war. But Brazil, Brazil has this feel to it. Like they had just elected this really progressive president and he was gonna be doing all kinds of great stuff. And my only job in Brazil was to go around giving speeches. So I received a fellowship from a nonprofit organization that was interested in diplomatic relations, like improving diplomatic relations between Brazilians and the United States. And in my case, I was specifically responsible to speak about what it was like to be a Black American, an African American. So uh, the organization sponsored my trip for six months. So I got this down pat. I get there and everything is exactly as I imagined. Of course, it takes me a little while to get into the groove of learning not to translate from English to Spanish and Spanish to Portuguese, because little by little, the Portuguese starts to actually come a little bit more naturally. And the way it does is by meeting friends in different places. Um, they take me to soccer games, and at these soccer games, I learn all the cuss words. Uh, like I'm standing by one person, he's like, Don, Don, um, when the other team kicks the ball, just yell out, Vai tomar no cu! And so I was like, all right, cool. So I just yell out, Vai tomar no cu! And I was like, yeah, Vai tomar no cu! And I'm like, okay, well, what, what does that mean? And he's like, it means take it up the ass! And I was like, yes, take it up the ass, great! I, I, I like it. And I'm learning about shoppies, which are their drinks or beer. And I'm learning about the food by just experimenting and the fruit. And I'm learning how to drive properly, which means not stopping at the stoplights, but just kind of stopping slowly, you know, flashing, honking, and just going through because clearly that's the safe way to drive at nighttime in Rio um, in this era. So, it's crazy, it's wild, it's cool, it's fun. And all I have to do in return for this amazing time that I'm having is going around and giving speeches at different clubs and letting people know what it's like to be a Trinidadian American in the United States. So one of these days I'm giving a speech and people start asking me about what it's like to have Bush as our president. So they ask, Don, why, why Bushy is your Presidente? I'm like, I don't, I don't know why Bush is my president. Like, I didn't vote for this dude. Like, I, I don't, you know, I don't know, like, who voted for this guy. But why, why Bushy want to wage war? I'm like, I, I can't tell you why, why Bush wants to wage war. I mean, it's, it's complicated for me to even explain in English, let alone Portuguese. But but look at you all. I mean, look at your president, Lula. He's come from the landless workers movement. He's amazing. He's progressive. Like, if anything, we should be trying to emulate more of Brazilian society than usual guys trying to emulate any of us. And that makes them feel good. It makes me feel good because really, truly, I am digging everything about Brazil. And I, little by little, am thinking to myself, that maybe I could live here. Like maybe I could just shed what I believe about being a Trinidadian. Even though my family came to the United States from Trinidad and Tobago, 
And I get that they wanted us to have a better life in the United States, but something about it just doesn't feel right. I don't like the laws. I don't like the way that black people are treated. And something about being in Brazil just makes it feel like we're more of a melting pot. We're more diverse. We're just kind of respected. So I continue just living, learning the language, going to soccer games, eating the food, having an amazing time and making a lot of friends. And two of the friends that I end up making really good friends with over some time are Ivana and Hejani. And Ivana Hejani, two queer women, um, and they just love living life. So they're like, you know what? Why don't we, why don't we go out to this party? We think that you're really gonna like it. It's a little bit out of Rio, um, about an hour and some change out of Rio, but you know, we think you're gonna dig it. I'm like, roll. Let's let's go with it. So they have a personal taxi driver. The taxi driver picks the three of us up and we're gone. We're just out in like the way, way like countryside of, of Rio de Janeiro. And I'm there, I'm partying, I'm having a good time. And I come across my tribe. Now when I say my tribe, I mean my people. And when I mean my people, I mean people who smoke weed. Okay. So we're having a good old time. We're, we're chilling. We're doing the damn thing. And I finally feel like, yes, like the crew is expanding. My friends are expanding. My popularity, it's, everything's just amazing. So we finally, at like two o'clock in the morning, decide that, you know, it's time to head back home. So we jump back in the taxi and we're heading back into Rio into the long hour and a half long ride. And about an hour into the ride, there's a checkpoint that's on the side of the road. So the police are pulling over all the vehicles who are coming to the area. So we're like, all right, no problem. So they pull us over and they start asking the driver in Portuguese if there's anything on the car. And the driver's like, no. And so the police ask us, all four of us, to step out of the vehicle so that they can search it. We're like, okay, no problem. So we get outside, it's pitch black outside. I have no idea where we're at, but the police start searching the vehicle. They start opening up all the doors, looking in all the cases, glove compartment, the trunk, the car wheels, like every single part of the car. They don't see anything. So they come over to each one of us and they ask us for our personal belongings. And I'm like, I have a purse on me. I'm like, I don't, why do you want my purse? And my friend Ivana was like, just, just, just give it to them. Just ask, just give them what they want. I'm like, okay. So they take my purse and they open up my purse, but they don't only open up my purse, but they open up every single little compartment inside of my purse. And they open up my makeup bag, they open up my wallet. And inside of where I keep my feminine products, was a little tiny chunk of weed that I had taken from the party. So the police walk over to me and they start speaking to me and they quickly realize that I have an accent and that I am not from Brazil. When we first started, they thought that I was from that area, which, you know, what I later realized is that a lot of drugs come from that area into the city. So they thought I was a local who was bringing drugs 
from that area into Rio, or not me personally, but they thought that the vehicle that I was traveling in was, you know, suspect. So they go over to my friends and then I can hear them talking and I understand enough at this point to know what's going on. And they say, so what are you all doing with this weed? And Yvonne was like, we don't, we don't have any weed. The police officer's like, well, she does. And they look over at me and they're like, Don, I'm like, I'm like, I'm, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I don't know what, what, what's going on. And they're like, but why did you, why did you take this from the party? I was like, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Somebody offered it to me. And so the police come back over to me and they're like, is this yours? And I say, oh no, I'm sorry, officers. You know, it was, I was taking it from this party over to some friends in Rio de Janeiro. And the police officers are like, oh, okay. So they turn back to my Brazilian friends and they say, so she's taking it to somebody else. And I was like, they're like, oh, we guess. And then they come back to me and they say, so, então você é traficante. In other words, you are a drug trafficker. And I'm like, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm definitely not a drug trafficker. I am. And my friends are like, just tell them it's yours. I'm like, and I'm like sitting there on the side of the road, trying to find the right words, getting really flustered. I'm like, oh, it's, it's, it's mine. I'm sorry. Like, you know, I, I'm sorry. It, it's, I got it from a party. I can just throw it away. And they don't want me to just throw it away. They start negotiating with Ivana and Hijani for money. And they have none and I have none. Because at this point in my trip, I was supposed to be there for six months. I had extended it for nine months, living off of ramen and rice and fish that we were catching in the sea. I didn't have any cash, but the police officers were not going to let that slide. So because this is the time when we don't really have cell phones, they decide, my two friends decide, that I better call up one of my American friends and get some cash to them quickly. But we're still about an hour from Rio de Janeiro. I have no phone, but the driver does. So he allows me to make a phone call to one of my American friends living in Brazil. And I explained to her, I like, look, the police want a couple hundred bucks um, and they're not gonna let me let let me go until they get the cash. And so Ivana and Hijani say, this is on you. And I'm like, what? And I am pissed as I see them jump back into the taxi, drive away with me standing on the side of the road with four Brazilian police officers with AK-47s. It's three o'clock in the morning and I don't know if they're gonna get the money. I don't know if he's gonna come back for me. I don't know what to do. I don't know if I'm gonna be raped. I don't know if I'm gonna be killed. I don't know if I'm gonna be deported. All I know is that this is not a good look. It's four o'clock in the morning. I'm pacing, still no sign. It's five o'clock in the morning. I'm pacing, still no sign. And finally, one of the police officers has this really kind of baby face, like really does not look like he should be carrying an AK-47 walks over to me and he says, okay, we need, we need to take you to another place. And I just start screaming and yelling like, no, look, you told the taxi driver to meet me here, that we would specifically meet here with money. Like, like you can't, you can't do this to me. Like you promised me. And they say, they're like, no, look, we talked to the driver. We told him to meet him at another checkpoint. 
she's going to meet you there. He, I was like, no, but you told me. And they're like, no, you're getting with us in this vehicle and we're going. And I have no choice. I don't know what to do. I don't know what my rights are. At this point, I don't think I have any. So I jump in the vehicle and they take me to another checkpoint. And as I'm looking around in the vehicle, there's four guys, all of them have these huge machine guns on them. I don't know where I'm at. It's now five o'clock in the morning and this is not feeling right. They finally let me outside of the car and I'm still like walking around. I'm starting to see a little bit more cars pass by in the morning time. And then by some type of miracle, I see that there's a taxi coming directly for the police officers. It's the driver. It's the driver who had taken myself, Hijani and Ivana to this party. And he walks over to the police officers. I don't see exactly what's going on, but I do see him hand them something. And he's like, and I run to the taxi and I jump in it and I am still trembling. I mean, I am mad, I'm sad. I want to like yell at these motherfuckers, Vato Mano cool. And he's like, Don, shut up. Just shut up. Like, just, I'm like, what the fuck was that? Like, how could they possibly do this? I'm like, they could, they, can they just pull this over on the side of the road? He's like, he's like, yes, they can just pull you over on the side of the road. And I asked, they can just search through your shit? Like, they can just go through my stuff like that? He's like, yes, they can just go through your shit like that. I'm like, but why? Like, you can't do that in the United States. He's like, this is not the United States. And I'm like, <sighs> and in that moment, I paused because I so was feeling everything about Brazil. I was feeling the music. I was feeling the people, the culture, the politics. And at this moment, I realized that my rights, my rights, even as a black person in the United States, would not have been treated like this. And for the first time, I didn't know if I wanted to be Brazilian. I didn't know if I wanted to be Trinidadian American. All I knew is that I was grateful for my freedom. The next afternoon at lunch, Luca comes lumbering in. He doesn't acknowledge me, and I don't talk to him. I'd been tossing and turning all night, wondering what I would do when we saw each other next. At this moment, it was pre-me too, and I decided I would let it go. I didn't want to let this one night define my time here. I could avoid him and stick closer to my volunteer friends. And at the time, I didn't really believe it was my place to tell Mora. I wasn't sure if she would slut-shame me, try to protect her son, and kick me out. So I stayed silent. If it happened today, I like to think I would have handled it differently. I would have screamed, tried to fight more, threatened to tell his mom, and actually do it. And I hope that in this post-Me Too world, that women are becoming more vocal when they don't want something, and men are okay hearing no, if not asking altogether. Flirting is not consent. And in my two most recent relationships, both of my partners asked if they could kiss me on our first date. They asked me, like I had a choice in the matter, even if I wanted it. But there are still people out there that have different boundaries around women. 
and traveling as a woman still has its dangers. But that one bad time did not and will not prevent me from traveling. My goal is to experience as much of the human condition as I can, and that includes the unfortunate times as well. But I wasn't going to let this ruin my time in Italy, or future bumps in the road, and I haven't. From my experience, and the conversations with other travelers, the world is much more protective than predatory. The statistics are shaky, but we're more likely to fixate on one story of the girl getting kidnapped in Thailand than the thousands of travelers landing safely back home. We have a cognitive bias towards the horrific stories, even if statistically they're less likely to happen. I'll leave you some light reading in the show notes. There are risks you will run into when you travel. There's nothing I can say on this podcast that will fully prepare you for what lies ahead. I can't predict the future, but I do encourage you to research the culture as much as you can. But when you're in the face of danger, your strength is tested. The world isn't always nice and travel isn't always easy, but these experiences can teach us how to grow. It can show us how we want to set standards for the world and treat others. We can grow significantly from our wounds. I've been assaulted. I've gotten my passport stolen. I've been trapped in a tannery and almost kidnapped. But the bigger risk is not going at all. Watching the world through a Netflix special or listening to travel on a podcast would never satiate me. So I will beat on, back against the current, to see how strong I am. Okay, so that was a lot, and I feel like we need an audio hug right now. So next week, we're going to balance all the insanity of the world with the kindness that it also brings. On our next episode, we're going to hear stories about times strangers were unbelievably and unquestionably benevolent, and see if the kind moments outweigh the scary ones. Next time on Strangers Abroad. Strangers Abroad.